0: A very I, quick 10-second okay. smoke. <laughs> sure. It's tobacco.
1: He says, coming from a university. No, I have that other. Make me look professorial. Professor Real. <laughs> Showtime, folks. Welcome to the show. We're good to go. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome one and all to the show. It's chilly out there tonight. Tonight's a perfect night to jump in your most comfy chair, get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of choice going, kick your feet up and relax. Now think for a second what would happen if you suddenly lost power. No biggie, right? It would probably be back on in, what, an hour, maybe two at the most. Now what if it was out for the whole day? How about two days a week? How about a month? Could you make it through a whole winter, a Canadian winter? without electricity and heat. Think about that for a second. So, about a hundred years ago, we weren't so locked into electricity, well, a little bit more than a hundred years ago, but now, think of it, every time you go to the bathroom, first thing you do, click the light switch on. We don't have to worry about refrigeration, we don't have to worry about fresh water, we don't have to worry about heat. It's all taken care for us by electricity. We are locked in folks, whether we like it or not, we're locked in to electricity, and I would argue the internet at this point too, the transition has taken place. So given the fact that an EMP is an electromagnetic pulse, it can take out electricity just like that. Can it be used as a weapon? There's an ominous answer there and the answer is yes. Our guest tonight is Dr. William R. Forchton and he's an expert on what is known as Electromagnetic Pulse or EMP. William has worked with the former head of the CIA, James Woolsey. CIA analyst Peter Pry, as well, he's addressed members of Congress on the devastation such an attack would inflict on the nation. Tonight we're going to discuss the latest threat from North Korea. Now, I was just telling William before the show that um, NPR ran a piece tonight where they're starting to ramp up the, um, the drills we used to go through back in the heyday of the Cold War, and you'd probably remember this, build duck and cover and all that, and they're saying that there's some merit to duck and cover. So, here we go. Back to the Cold War all over again. What was history? is now present day. William has a PhD in military history, history of technology. William has penned over 40 books, including the New York Times bestseller Gettysburg and Pearl Harbor, co-authored with Newt Gingrich. Months before publication, William's book, One Second After, which I have right here, was already cited on the floor of Congress as a book all Americans should read. It has been discussed in the corridors of no less than the Pentagon folks as a real, realistic look at EMPs and their awesome ability to send catastrophic shockwaves throughout the United States and Canada, literally within seconds. It's my great pleasure to welcome William to the show for the very first time. Thank you for joining us, my friend.
0: Well, that was quite a lead-in, and we're not going to tell the audience about what a pain it was to get our Skype systems <laughs> synced in together. Well, that's technology North was Korea betraying me tonight.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's either Iran or North Korea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I thought it was a
0: conspiracy as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could have been China. Who
1: knows? <laughs> okay, let me start off with a great, great quote from ex Speaker of the House. Newt Gingrich, and is it ex-speaker? I'm Canadian, right? You can tell when I say about right away. You know, oh, I know where this guy's from. But is it? Do you say the ex-speaker, or do you still call him speaker in the same? Sense? Uh, you his call title
0: him? still is officially uh, speaker. Okay, thank you. For He's that. addressed as Mr. Speaker, the same way a retired president, president is still addressed as Mr. President. Right. We do the same. Or thing we do some other things we might not address former presidents as, but we're on a polite show here. <laughs>
1: Well, we could go there too. Anything you want to, anywhere you want to go. Well, you're Canadian. You might have something to say
0: about a couple (laughs) previous PMs.
1: (laughs) Oh, and I do. Trust me. I was no Diefenbaker fan. Trust (laughs) me on that one. Okay. There's been. This is from Newt Gingrich, the uh, Speaker of the House, folks. There has been much attention given since 9/11 to a wide variety of threats to our nation additional attacks by the hijacking of commercial airlines, biological and chemical attacks, even the potential of a so-called dirty bomb, or even an actual nuclear detonation in the center of one of our major cities. But few have talked about, let alone heard about, the terrible, in fact overwhelming threat of EMP, which is indeed shorthand for electromagnetic pulse weapon. That's pretty heavy for the Speaker of the House to come and say something along this magnitude. Now, your books are fabulous, by the way, folks. I'm going to hold the two of them up right here, and he has 38 more. He has 40 books out there, folks. And... um, Okay, make sure I've got that the right way and not upside down. You can get them all at the links at our website. And uh, you just click on the link, take you to a place you can order from from the comfort of your own home. And that would be a good thing to do tonight because it's chilly here in Kingston. A little bit about Kingston, William, just to tell you. Kingston is our um, military college. It's it's a cross between Annapolis and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know. So it's only an hour and a half north of Syracuse. And it's a bit of stone's throw from Watertown and Fort Drum. So, give you an idea. And we also have our comms here as well. So, it's, it's a big military town. It's a CFB, Canadian Forces Base. So, ominously enough, we were talking about North Korea. So, I looked at the trajectory projections if they were to launch missiles. Guess what, folks? Guess where they go right over. I could reach out and wave to them as they go by. So, here's the real threat for all of us some of them are going to drop short. So people in Canada think that they're going to be unscathed if a nuclear weapon goes over to cause it not going to happen as William shakes our head. Okay. What would happen potentially if North Korea said let's send a few nukes over cause an EMP. What would happen? What would be the first thing we'd notice?
0: Okay let's go to EMP 101 for starters shorthand for electromagnetic pulse. It is the byproduct of detonating a nuclear weapon above the Earth's atmosphere, where the atmosphere is extremely thin, electrons spaced far, uh, molecules spaced far apart. The gamma ray bursts coming off of a bomb in that first microsecond, starts splitting off electrons in the upper atmosphere, which cascade down in sort of like a chain reaction through the atmosphere. You won't feel it. You won't see it or smell it or anything. But it's a massive electrostatic discharge that when it hits the Earth's surface, feeds through the electrical wiring. It's sort of an analogy might be it always happens the day after you buy a new widescreen TV, a lightning bolt hits next to your house and takes it out. Well, this, an EMP will blow out a fair part of the power grid within a line of sight. The worst case scenario would be three nuclear weapons uh, two or three times the size of a Hiroshima bomb, we're not even talking hydrogen bombs, detonated eastern United States, central United States, western United States, does a lay down, that includes at least 100 to 200 miles up into Canada, your grid goes down, end game, once you've lost your electrical power, The war is literally over one second after.
1: And let's not forget, folks, 90% of Canadians live within 100 miles of the border. So, guess what? We're done without electricity. 1998, I was in Montreal, went through the ice storm in the Mm -hmm. middle of January without electricity. It's not a good time. It's not a good time. Now, the first thing that would happen would be what? What What would the reaction be? both on a micro level and a macro level in the government situation.
0: Well, let's sort of look at this as almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Well, oxygen's going to continue, but how long uh, can a person typically live without water? About three days. For almost all of us, our water supply is dependent upon some aspect of electrical pumping and then disposal. For a place like LA, it could be hundreds of miles. Somebody living along Lake Ontario or Lake Erie, if you really want to drink that stuff, it can be pumped, but it has to then be filtered and then goes to your home. You lose water. Number two, the average food supply in almost any major community in the United States or Canada varies between 20 to 30 days. That's between what is in your fridge to the truck that's backing up to the supermarket. And remember, most of it is dependent upon refrigeration. So within a matter of days, a few weeks at most, you have lost your food supply. Three, medication, medical supplies, etc. <clears throat> the vast majority of your pharmacies run off of FedEx or UPS. You go in, you get a prescription, goes into their computer, two days later, resupply is in. Well, all of that is gone. Transportation. I'm getting to the end. <laughs> Let well, take another hour. No, I, I'm
1: right with you because this is exactly what I went through. Montreal, folks, is an island. It has yeah. bridges. They were solid, uh, stacked solid with ice, three feet thick. The trucks could not get through to resupply. Please continue. i right. sorry to interrupt.
0: Well, when we lose transportation, estimates vary. Uh, I've heard high-end that almost 90% of all vehicles made pretty well after 1980 or so will short off because of the electrical components that are hit by an EMP. I've heard a low-end figure of five to 10%. Well, let's say 10% at five o'clock in the afternoon on an American interstate or on the main bridge going in and out of Montreal, what happens to the other 90% of the cars? And also your cars are dependent upon gasoline. How does that supply get there? You pull into a gas station. You pull out your ATM card or your credit card. That system is down. Command and control breaks down. Do you want me to keep going? Uh, the Congress—I base my books on uh, two congressional reports from 2004, 2008. Your listeners and watchers here just simply look up congressional report EMP 2004, 2008. Both of those reports. Presented an estimate that the casualty rate in the United States could be as high as 90 percent will die within a year,
1: and that's not even talking fallout or the initial blast radius. There's no
0: fallout. There's no initial blast. Now, if you happen to be looking in that direct, you know, sight towards the weapon at detonation. You might get a little bit of a flash startle for a second. It's not going to burn your retinas because that happens. You have to be relatively close to the bomb. and It'll be like, what's that? And then your power is gone. Uh, Dr. Peter, let me just throw in Dr. Peter Pry, who I have great respect for. He's a good friend. uh, Used to be an advisor to the CIA. He's been working on this issue for years. And Pry in one of the congressional reports said, it'd be the equivalent of throwing us back to 1870. The first time I sat down with Dr. Pry, I said, you know, I agree with 99% of what you've said, because I double-checked, I disagree with 1870. And he's like, why? I was like, sir, because in 1870, people knew how to live in 1870. They were familiar with the infrastructure. It was part of their daily lives. We are not. This would be the equivalent of a throwback of a thousand years or more because we are clueless, the vast majority of us, on some of the most basic fundamentals of staying alive. And even if you know it, can you survive long enough in chaos to achieve some sort of stability? This is a nightmare scenario.
1: Without question, especially in major urban centers, and that's where I was during this same type of scenario. And this only lasted two weeks, folks. Only Mm -hmm. two weeks. I had young nephews that were just toddlers. We couldn't get food for them because you've all seen those nuclear holocaust movies from the 60s when people are racing up and down the aisles looking for food. Yep, that's exactly what took place in Montreal. You cannot use your credit card. You cannot use your ATM card. There's no electricity for this stuff and you are 100% right. If you don't have a tank full of gas when this happens, you're done. Because you can't go get gas anywhere else, because the pumps won't work to bring it to the top, and that's a fact. People were using candlelight. Problem is, with candlelight, it'll give you heat for a short period of time. The problem is, you're looking at fires. It got and then to, you run candles. Well, there you go. exact. There's no resupply,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and this is, was this was the problem. There was no resupply, and it got to the point where Montreal had a reserve, huge reserves of water, but after two weeks we were at the edge so they said well geez you know we're gonna have to open up the tents to the St. Lawrence (laughs) you don't want that I mean talk about feces city so they said well we can't do that we're gonna shut down the taps and then the fire department came along and said hey if you shut down the taps there's no water to put out fires Yep. and this is the problem so you were saying only three nukes could take out the United States and most of Canada, just like that. Who has those capabilities right now?
0: That is the most easy underhand pitch I think I've ever had in an interview. Gee, who has them? Gee, might we talk about North Korea and Iran?
1: What about delivery systems? We you obviously know, are.
0: They, can't reach we are. they can't reach us, they can't reach us. In order to keep my sanity on this issue at times, it's almost like you have to laugh in the face of the apocalypse, which you and I are doing at the moment. We are on the edge of, to use the German word, got you know, the, the end. Uh, we have been kicking the can down the road for 25 years, ever since North Korea started moving towards nukes in the early 90s, and the can has hit the wall. We can't go any further. The DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, it's the sort of like the counterpart of our CIA. The DIA handles military intelligence. They're good guys. I had a very dear friend who used to head the DIA. And boy, he, he was a straight Arab. It was shocking when about four or five months ago, DIA presented a major reassessment of their analysis. They said it's not six to 10 nukes. We think they now might have 60 nukes. It's not five years till they reach ICBM capability. It could be a matter of months and what just happened last month. This is the most dangerous situation we have been in, perhaps since the Cuban Missile Crisis and nobody is reacting.
1: I agree with you, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, it's funny, Ted Sorensen was my friend, Kennedy's speechwriter, um, just to let folks know. And I asked him, I was sitting on his couch one day, and I said, so Ted, tell me about the Cuban Missile Crisis. He said, we were that close. Kennedy had called the kids and to come home with Jacqueline. They all thought they were gonna die the next day. This is a real possibility, it's a real scenario. I'm not trying to give anybody um, scary nightmares or anything along mm-hmm. those lines. Rex Tillerson was in Ottawa today. He was talking with our secretary, our minister, our foreign minister, and um, they were talking about creating an alliance. They're going to have a meeting now in Vancouver uh, in January where they're going to get people from Japan, the secretaries from Japan and a and bunch of countries and try and create an alliance, uh, Russia and China as well. Mm-hmm. All are on board with this, to try and put pressure on North Korea. Sounds like a nice scenario. I don't know if it's going to work or not, because you've got a madman at the helm, right? And how do you deal with somebody like that? I think Iran, too. I mean, Iran is very um, much more underhanded. I'm going to quote a word from you before that I used. (laughs) Very underhanded in their own strategic offensive measures as well. Um, especially with the uh, Republican Guards. Uh, It's it's a very scary situation. Your opinion on how to rein North Korea in, is it possible without military intervention?
0: Well, you and I both grew up during the Cold War. You and I both recall something called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. What a great acronym for a true bit of insanity that did have logic you go back, you look at Herman Kahn, who's not the current one, but from the 50s, who wrote the incredible book on nuclear war and the RAND Corporation. <sighs> MAD meant this mutual assured destruction. You launch at me, even if you take at 90, 95% of my military capability, I will still have enough weapons left over to counter launch back and totally destroy you. All we need is one or two what what's known as boomers, um, submarines loaded with nukes, each one carrying upwards of 250 warheads. It's a no win. Now, they used to say that the Russians were atheists. Well, true or not, the Russians wanted to inherit a coherent, functioning world. Not Smoking Room, not Moscow, Leningrad, all of them gone. That no longer applies because the Russians were logical. We are dealing with two psychotic regimes. Have we really at the point now that our survival is dependent upon a true madman who was running North Korea with that cult of personality? We're dealing with the Iranians who would perhaps, some of their more extreme leadership, of 12 uh, Twelvers, could actually see a final Armageddon as a fulfillment of prophecy.
1: You know the Shiite Armageddon you were just talking about just to let folks know Shiite part of Islam believes that there is going to be a messianic figure returning It's called the 12th Imam in much the same sense that Christianity believes that Jesus will return Well in order to usher in the 12th Imam you have to have an Armageddon a complete meltdown of the world and they are prepared, they have said the supreme leader, there's the supreme leader, then there's the, um, uh, the council. Uh, I think there's 12 members of the council, and then they decide who you can vote for, and it filters down that way. You can find shows on that in the archives, by the way, folks. The deal is, they have already said they're quite prepared to take out Israel, or have a nuclear face-off with anybody because they don't care if they survive or they don't survive. All they're worried about is starting this crazy, crazy Armageddon war. So that, therefore, puts it in cycle that the 12th Imam will return. This is the logic that we're dealing with. How do you deal with that? How do you isolate these people? You're quite right, Ted Sorensen told me, you know, with Khrushchev, at least you had somebody who cared about people who cared about his society who cared about his infrastructure there was somebody rational with the same essential values they cared about their kids that they could have a conversation with i asked him i said what do you do with the taliban he said you have to reach out to other people that can rein him in that's the only other solution i'm not sure if we can avoid a military intervention in this situation. It's a scary, scary thing. How have you, have you prepared for something like this taking place?
0: Personally? <laughs> That's classified. <laughs> uh, well, of course how, I have.
1: Okay, let, let me, let me read um, it in a
0: different way. And how I would you heard, tell and, people? the town I live in, let, let me add that uh, my book One Second After, actually there's three, the, the middle one is called Uh, one year after, then final day. There's set, oh, I like that. That's a cool photo. Uh, They're set in a real place. They're set in my my hometown, Black Mountain, North Carolina, and the college I teach at Montreat. Uh, Most people in this area are aware of this, well, in part because of the book. But let me throw in a point of concern here. Imagine you go home tonight and a new neighbor has moved in and you're hearing gunfire from your neighbor's yard and he's screaming obscenities and you go and you peek over the fence and he's got a picture of you and your family and he's poking, he's popping holes in it with a heavy caliber weapon and screaming obscenities. Are you going to take that seriously or are you just going to go in your house and hide? What are you going to do? On an almost daily basis, North Korea flat-out says, we are going to EMP you. We are going to hit you with an EMP strike. The Iranians have actually put out entertaining short videos showing America being annihilated by an EMP. That is as bad as a psychotic neighbor pumping rounds into your picture. (sighs) Are we that blind? Oh, are we that much of ostriches? Would our heads stuck in the sand? Would our butts in the air? Yeah.
1: Well, you'd think we'd learn from World War II as well. Now, if we did do a military intervention, I suspect that Russia would <laughs> side with us, and also China, because they share a common border. And I'm sure, you know, every superpower wants stability. That's the number one thing. They want stability yes. in the world, so the markets and everybody's happy. Now you've got these two rogue guys happening, you've got North Korea, of course, and Iran will deal with North Korea first. My own interpretation of this is if we went in militarily we could take them over like that, even without using nuclear weapons, I think we just on a conventional level, if we had the Russians with us and the Chinese with us, and then we could just divide up the country, the same sense that we divided up Germany between the superpowers, and eventually for the time being leave it like that and eventually perhaps rejoin it with South Korea. Your perspective?
0: Wow. Uh, First of all, neither Russia or China want a full blowout nuclear war. Uh, It is as destabilizing to them as to us. The ability to surgically strike and take out North Korea's nuclear capability I'm a military historian nothing ever works according to plan there's the old saying that victory usually goes to the side that makes the fewer mistakes there will always be mistakes I forget the German word for it that Klausel which wrote in one of his, his books about war it, there is an improbability of war that makes it impossible to truly predict no war has ever ended the way we thought it would end Uh it will be very bad. Let me give a little side example. I remember some years back, it was a low budget thing, but a a, a group of people got together with, and they did a little video, I think it's still on YouTube, uh, that what would have happened if modern media had been on Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944? I mean, it was a low budget thing, but oh my God. It was, you know, you had your Harada Rivera type, the guys, there's bodies everywhere talking to the shell shock guy, and the guy is saying it was effing chaos. Where the heck was this? Where the heck was that? Trying to interview Bradley and Eisenhower. I have nothing to say. There are reports 50% of our parachutists are casualties in this encounter, etc. It's et et going into like a triage area. People are dying, and the reporter concludes with, We are already hearing voices tonight in America that it is time to negotiate this war with Hitler and bring this madness to an end. This is so-and-so reporting from Omaha Beach, June 6, 1944. I have worked with a lot of veterans. I helped one with his autobiography, uh, who was on that beach. It was a bloody hellish nightmare. It was a horrible price to be paid for appeasement. We have not faced that type of potential casualty list since the Chosun Reservoir in Korea in, the ni- in 1950. We could very well, nothing will go perfect if we go to war tomorrow. There could very well be thousands of casualties on our side and definitely on the South Korean side. What's the alternatives? I, I pray, I, I I'm a military historian. I study madness. This way some people study cancer. I don't like it. It was the profession I chose. I pray we can find some way out of it. But yet again, the previous administration did a miserable job of kicking the can. So did that. I'm not just blaming Democrats in America. But starting with Clinton, through Bush, through Obama, it was kick the can, kick the can, kick the can. Now we're up against the wall. Isn't this a great, happy, optimistic <laughs> conversation you and I are having tonight
1: for, for Christmas, Hanukkah, and uh, Salam Alaikum to yeah, everybody too. You yeah. know, yeah. This but is we got to face the reality. Absolutely, yeah. and that's the bottom line. We have to find yeah. a solution to this, and um, we have to take the steps to find the solutions. Now, one thing Sorensen did tell me, they were being urged by the Pentagon to go and attack Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, folks, and. Had they gone and attacked Cuba, they were not prepared. They didn't know that the missiles were ready to go, and the missiles would have been launched at the United States. So, by Kennedy holding back the Marines of the Pentagon, it was a good idea. The blockade was a good idea. Sorensen said, you know, we can always whack them any time we want. That's not, we can always go to war any time we want, but we have to take these steps. But again, I have to emphasize, folks, we were dealing with semi-rational people on the Soviet side, not so much with Iran. You know, you, when death is the, you become a martyr, and death is exonerated the way it is, and you become a rock star if you if, through martyrdom. Um, how do you deal with people like that? Do when, you know about
0: the keys to paradise? Yes,
1: yes, I do. Yeah,
0: but go ahead. Uh, during the Iran Iraq War of the eighties, they were grabbing kids out of high schools and they were using them as human mind detectors. They would push them ahead of the Republican Guard and as they paraded past that Satan on Earth, the Ayatollah Khomeini, they were given plastic keys to paradise and they were saying, you know, you you will be rewarded tonight and they would use them as human mind detectors. That's not rational. Now, the Soviets in World War II did somewhat the same. You know, they, they would throw tens of thousands of troops into suicidal charges. But here's a key point. Nikita Khrushchev was the commissar at Stalingrad. He witnessed the Battle of Stalingrad for over four months. He knew what total hell looked like, and it stayed with him. He was not a good guy, but at least he was a rationalist in terms of we don't want this again. If I can just run for one minute more on this. Some years back, I was in Leningrad when it was still Leningrad. I had a group of students, I asked our guide to take us to one of the cemeteries there. She was very reluctant. I might get emotional telling you this. She finally agreed, took the students and me, one out of three cemeteries in Leningrad, over 600,000 people were buried there. In just these mass graves, you would see a stone about the size of a standard desk, and on the stone would be 6,000, 1941, which meant 6,000 bodies in that one mass grave, 600,000 dead. Our guide broke down as she was trying to talk to us and finally she said, I didn't want to come here, but I want, I said, why? I wound up hugging her. She said, I survived. My entire family's buried in one of these cemeteries. I don't know where they are. And she said something very potent. We in Russia know what World War III will look like because we survived it in World War II. I'll never forget that. I mean, this woman was not my enemy, nor was she, you know, my enemy, her enemy, whatever. We all stood there and we cried. We have no concept of how horrific it would be. We haven't had a major war in this land since 1865. But. When you go to a nation like North Korea or you go to a nation like Iran, they are psychotic run nations. Do the average people want war? Hell no. They don't want war any more than you or I want, but they have a leadership that seems hell-bent. I'm (laughs) going in that direction.
1: I'm very, very close to the Iranian community here, the Persian community, I should say, in Canada. and. I have seen the scars up close and personal, I have seen the people that have come from Evin prison with their scars up close and personal. Not only physical, but psychological as well. And you're absolutely right, they also did the same thing with the kids on the Iranian side. They would send them before the tanks to attack the Iraqi tanks by running and sliding underneath the tank with bombs and blow themselves up to take out the tanks. And again, they would achieve martyrdom and, of course, go to paradise. The same crazy, crazy ideology, all for Ayatollah Khomeini. Absolutely insane. And Saddam Hussein on the other side. Um, I also interviewed a fellow who was uh, there on the Iranian side who uh, went through the gas attacks and he broke down. He just completely broke down in the interview. So we do not want war. War is the final, final step. But I've got to put how and a however in here. I go back to the 1967 war, the Six Day War. That was a preemptive strike. That was justified, I feel, in every sense. Do you feel we're at that point right now with either Iran or North Korea?
0: Yeah, I say that with very heavy heart. I've done a lot of interviews. I've done—I must have done 500 interviews since the, the first book came out eight years ago. We could survive the preemptive strike of December 7, 1941. We lost 3,000 men that day. We lost a fair part of our Pacific fleet. Only 44 months later, a thousand ships of the United States Navy were anchored in Tokyo Bay with 2,000 planes flying over the city. with a very clear message. Don't ever mess with us again for the next 100 years. Took 44 months, it took 400,000 lives. We survived 9-11, no matter how traumatic that was. This realm of EMP usage in a nuclear strike, redefines the fundamental paradigms of warfare. It means literally that in a matter of a second, you can so cripple an opponent that they'll never really recover. To put point out something that's in, in my first book, One Second After, people are dying in this community across this year. One Second After follows a typical community for one year, main character, retired military officer who's a college professor. The only thing autobiographical is he's a college professor. All right. Well, towards the end, somebody comes in from the outside and he says, what the hell happened? The lights went out and that was it. Person tells him, well, the guys who did this to us, their country is glass. You won't be able to step foot in their land for a thousand years. And he's standing there, my main character standing there with some of the other people of the village, and one of them says, so what difference does it make now? Think about that. What difference does it make now? We, we essentially lost. Everybody will lose in this one. So going back to preemptive strike, it's a frightful responsibility, but if we have Irrefutable proof that they are on the edge of doing us, we have to move first. Because once that missile is launched, or half a dozen missiles, the probability of striking them is most likely less than 50% after they get through the boost stage. Um, Okay, we did a preemptive strike on Iraq in 2003, claiming we were going after weapons of mass destruction. Everybody threw their hands up and said they're not there. Well, I think most people know they were there. But in the months leading up to it, where did most of those weapons wind up? In Syria. And were there weapons there? Yeah. Yes. Uh, we just had somebody in my town, a, a well-respected minister, out of a unit he was with with 12 men who were responsible for disposing of some weapons. I think 9 out of the 12 have a form of Parkinson's disease now. They were burning chemical weapons, weapons of mass destruction. This minister got exposed to it, and he died a horrible death. And interestingly, the VA acknowledges it as a militarily related injury.
1: Just want to interject, folk back before we went into Iraq, actually Canada never went into Iraq, we went into Afghanistan, officially we never went into Iraq. All I have to say is there was a Mossad report where the Mossad had the chemical weapons going to Syria. Next thing yes. you know in Syria, you know what happened. So, yeah, absolutely. So
0: but look at the political division in the United States, and I can imagine our friends around the world are looking at the way America is ripping itself apart politically at this moment. Unless then something really drastic happens, I could see even more political division and hysteria if we finally decide to move first. It might take something radical to get all of us to pull together and realize we can no longer accept a nuclear-armed North Korea, nor a nuclear-armed Iran. No, I We're agree. not even that much. Just no. don't have nukes, and we can try and live in peace, even though your people are in a hellhole at the moment.
1: The JFK Assassination The definitive book by Brent Holland From inside the Oval Office to Daily Plaza First person witness accounts Order yours right now NightFrightShow.com Okay, let's go back to North Korea. North Korea launches. They send the missiles over Kingston. Great news, eh? Folks, if you're just joining us, we're talking about EMPs tonight. Um, the book is called One Second After, and the second book is The Final Day. What was the name of the third one?
0: second book is One Year After. One Year which, After. Guess what? Picks up one year after the first book. And the third book is called The Final Day. The Final and Day. I know when I turned that in, my editor said, "Are you trying to give a message?" <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, a trilogy is a trilogy, is a trilogy, and this topic is so bloody, depressing, my next book is going to be "Happy Bunny Goes to Town." but nobody wants to buy it." <laughs>
1: <laughs> Happy Bunny) <laughs> Let me just ask you this before I forget. because mm-hmm. we mentioned 9/ 11 before. Yes. you have a young daughter.
0: She was even younger back then. What did you tell her at 9 /11? You're going to get me emotional. I'm a college professor. I was on campus when the towers went down. It was hell. Uh, One of my editors called me up, was able to get a hold of me briefly, and he was just across on the Brooklyn side. And he said, everything's just covered in smoke. My daughter came home, and to sit with my daughter, well, it's She's, her dad's a military historian. So I told her the truth, even though she was eight years old at the time, that this is, you are looking at war. You're looking at war, sweetheart. And I pray we can protect you. That was a huge motivation for writing one second after. You let me run with this for 30 seconds. I was in Washington DC on the day the commission report was released and nobody paid attention to it because on that same day was the identical day that the commission on 9 11's report was released and where, where was worldwide media that day they were at one end looking at how the last war started versus looking forward to how the next one will start i had a long conversation with newt gangridge that evening he is the one that pushed me write a book about this because somebody has to start explaining to the public what this is. I met with the head of the committee the next day, said the same problem. This sounds like tinfoil hat stuff. The public isn't aware of it. Where do I link in with my daughter? I drove home. I'm about a 12, 14 hour drive from DC. Got home late. One of the advantages of being a college professor. You always got babysitters. Paid the babysitter. I'm a single dad. And uh, I went and I peeked in at my daughter, and I will freely admit I broke down crying. I was looking at my baby, my only child, and I was like, how do I protect her from this? If you read the forward, most people don't read forwards, but if you read the forward in one second after, at the end of that forward, I say, I pray that 30 years from now, my name is forgotten. If anybody even looks at the book, they'll say he was a crazy crank. It Never happened. Which will mean my daughter grew up in a safe world and went on to a happy life. So that's why I wrote the books. As much as anything it was to get that message out there and make the world a bit safer for my girl.
1: I think you've done that. You've achieved that without question. Uh, After she's read your books, (laughs) <laughs> and you've had you've said she's older now, right? So, he's 24, she's up in Michigan now. Yeah. Okay. You sit down, you have a talk with her. How does she react?
0: Now. Ah, this you got an interesting thing. I I forbid my daughter to from reading the book when it first came out. Book came out in 09. Megan was 14, 15. <clears throat> well, she came home that Following fall, after the book came out, I said, Dad, uh, it's required reading in my English class. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I said, yeah, the teacher wants you to come in and talk about it. I was like, oh, my gosh. So she said, everybody's asking me, boy, your dad really wrote a depressing book. Uh, yeah, but and there's an old Crosby Stills and Nash song called Teach Your Children Wow. And... Um, we have to educate them. It, it's, it's tough on me because, you know, the millennial generation is no longer in college. Some people, we've yet to put a tag on them. Some people are calling it Generation Z. And I look at these kids, and more than a few of my students across the last 10 years have suddenly been sent to exotic foreign lands where strange people are trying to kill them. It's a hell of a thing to teach somebody, and a couple years later you get an email, hey doc, uh, I'm outside of Kabul, and pray for me, you know? There's an old saying from the Romans, in peace, sons bury their fathers, in war, fathers bury their sons.
1: That's very accurate As you as well. and I get
0: older, we start to see that perspective more and more. Yeah, I lost oh, a friend over that. can't yeah. you ask me a
1: happy question? <laughs> Okay, let me think of a happy question to ask you. Oh, I got got a funny one for you. Are are you going to be with her for Christmas? Yeah, Uh, I got a
0: funny one for you. Go ahead. I did write a book uh, in between the first and second book in the series. I wrote a book called Pillar to the Sky. It was an incredible experience. It was working in cooperation with NASA, and they gave me full access to Goddard space flight. I wrote this very long, epic novel about the building of a space elevator, It's called Pillar to the Sky. It didn't do all as well as the other books, but it it did good. I'm proud of it. I think it was reviewer number 99 on Amazon came out with a one-star review and wrote regarding Pillar to the Sky. This book sucks. Forced should stick to doom and gloom. (laughs) And I was like, remember the line from The Godfather? Every time I try and get out, they pull me back in again. <laughs> so, so here we are talking about Doom and Gloom, but by heavens, we can't stick our heads in the sand.
1: Well, we can't, and that's the yeah. point. That's the point of the books too, and mm-hmm. uh, you know they're great books and take you on a ride as well, folks.
0: And make I like the way pick. you hold them up like that. You know, it's kind of cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what can we do to prepare? if something like that gets uh-huh. launched at us. The individual, and what does that do to our defenses, our ability to respond militarily?
0: When I wrote the book One Second After, I actually had a fantasy that the American federal government was going to go, oh my gosh. Uh, I knew Congressman Roscoe Bartlett, who chaired the committee, of course I knew Newt. Uh, my publishers sent close to 600 copies of the book free to Capitol Hill. Congressman Bartlett had his staff hand-deliver a copy to every single member of Congress saying, read it, think about it, let's get the S.H.I.E.L.D. Act passed. I heard they made wonderful door stops or uh, or hung up in bathrooms. (laughs) And in the American political system, twice, now three times, we've had what have been called the shield act or protect american grid act all three times in our wonderful system they've been totally gridlocked they get through the house they get locked in the senate thanks particularly to the senator from alaska lakowski and one or two others gets killed in committee i've given up on that my whole pitch now is the bottom up start with you start with me am i pointing at the camera correctly yeah Start with you, start with me. It doesn't take all that much. Start with just getting a week's worth of supplies in your house. And absolutely have, for 20 bucks, get a good filtration system that you can almost stick it into a swamp or Lake Ontario. And drink right out of the thing and you're going to live. Make sure you keep your medications up to date. Legally try and get a six-month supply. Go from one week to two weeks, two weeks to four weeks. It's not this super expensive process, whether you live in an apartment, whether you live in a high-rise, or whether you live out in the country. You can build up the ability to get through a month or two, and the survival rate would go up astronomically if every single person at least could hang on for a month or two. It prevents that social breakdown, that chaos in the market. I, I teach at a Christian college, so that is my perspective. I also think about, what about my neighbor? What about the old lady up the street? Uh, suppose my neighbor shows up after four days with his granddaughter and says, she's hungry. Could you please help me? Am I going to lock the door? Start thinking about things like that. Also, it's always good to befriend somebody who's a nurse or a doctor or an EMT and start building your networks together that you know you can count on each other as neighbors. Absolutely. That's my pitch. Yeah. That is my pitch. Okay.
1: Now, you can count on Canada, folks, because we were there for 9 11. We kept our, our skies open so the planes could land. So just come to Canada. You guys did
0: one heck of a job on 9 11. You're very kind, my friend. I wasn't. Looking no, for really. Him. I mean, all that all that air traffic was diverting into what was it? Goose. Yeah, goose gander. A goose Bay. yeah goose Bay. gander. Yeah, goose. Gander. Yeah, uh, and across Canada. And yeah, of course. I mean, we we had our fluff up in 1812, but since then,
1: <laughs> that was the British. That was not us. Yeah. We were Canada, oh no,
0: Canada. but I just somewhere near Kingston. You really kicked our butts in one battle. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: we won't talk about Dolly Madison. No, either. but I mean, we but have stood
0: side-by-side. Like, side absolutely.
1: Areas. And absolutely. I always try to count
0: on D-Day, every, all Americans think there was only Omaha and Utah. Well, there were three Commonwealth beaches there, Juneau, Gore, uh, Gold, and Sword. One of them was strictly a Canadian beach. And that was one hell of a yeah, hard beach to take. i yeah. walked.
1: Oh, we were all hard. What a horrible horror. But we were there, side by side, and we'll be there again. It's because, folks, I'm going to sound a little bit corny right now, but I want to tell you the truth. Canadians look as Americans, not as neighbors. Family, mashpucha, there's a Hebrew word. We're family, and we took people right into our homes because there wasn't enough hotel space in this little place called Gander. But, yeah, that's what we do. I mean, I remember closing down the studio and everybody went down to give blood because I was in Montreal at the time and originally before the towers fell. And, you know, we saw the people jumping and stuff. And before the towers fell, we thought that, there was rumors that there was going to be 50,000 casualties and we thought that a lot of them would come to Montreal because of the close proximity so they were going to need blood so the call went out everybody give blood so when I was down giving blood the TV was on and towers fell
0: okay I sense you're getting emotional on that one.
1: Oh, what a day it was just awful just awful uh, the th- I'll never forget the people jumping I out uh, What's, what's your choice, burn or die? Oh. And then I lost a friend in Afghanistan after. And, uh, yeah.
0: Well yeah. this know, was a
1: pick-me-up show, eh, folks? Aren't you glad to tune in for this one? You know, the,
0: the strongest memory I have of 9-11, and I might cry, was that evening, and there was an absolutely exhausted firefighter going back in, and the guy was just totally covered. I mean, his face had been wiped off. The reporter went up to him and actually appealed to him. You've done enough. Go rest. He says, no, no. He took his helmet off. It's going to be hard to talk about. There was a picture of a family. He said, someone in that picture is inside that building. I'm going to find him. I'm going to get him home to his family. Um, Not to sound hackneyed, the firefighter was an African-American. The photo was a white guy. And all of this racial BS that we scream about every day is, I can't say it other than it's BS. At that moment, we were all united. I cried. That is my strongest memory of 9-11. Was that man going back into that hell. To try and find what was left of somebody that was in that photo. Why is it that war can bring that out in the best of us at least for a moment? We should be damned grateful for what we have right now, particularly in this holiday season. Oh, I'm with you, man. Okay, friend. I got through that without crying. That was that was nice almost job. a first. Nice Usually job. I choke up on that story.
1: Military historian, is there a, I always study history for precedence. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing I tell kids today, students today. since not use the K word because they get mad. I'm not a kid; I'm a grown. Okay. They come to their dads. They come to their moms for advice. It's the same thing. While we study, why we study history? It's because we're looking for somebody that has been through there, through that before, either in real life or some kind of precedent, in between the pages. Is there a precedent for something like this?
0: Yeah. Oh, there's numerous precedents for it. Uh, I've been on four expeditions to Mongolia. I'm fascinated with Mongolian history. One day I was way out there in the steppes. I mean, it was really cool. I mean, I'm really getting off on Mongolia, and we're sitting on the ruins of a wall, a fortress wall. And in the distance, there's our herder. He's driving five or 600 head of horse. They're coming towards us from a mile... And so the heat shimmers. You know how it distorts them? It was incredible. You could actually feel the ground shaking just from those 500 horses. And I turned to my buddy and I said, I'm going to have to kill some of the words. Uh, I said, you know, just about 800 years ago. There were a couple guys like you and I sitting here and we were going, oh, it's the Khan. It's Genghis Khan. He's coming. Boom. That city was gone and looted within the hour. So across history, cities have been annihilated, countries have been annihilated. So it's not going to be a first. It would not, it, Nothing of ever this magnitude. But uh, you go back across history any number of times, the old line from the Romans about uh, the last thing heard is, the barbarians are through the gates. Well, sometimes we open the gates and let the barbarians in. And the other thing for the Romans: yep. those who desire peace must prepare for war. That like is always. the great paradox of military history. We're gonna to have to start to wrap up now, but I want. It's been a fact Gosh, it's been quick. <laughs> 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 we yeah.
1: survived it, tears yeah. and Maybe
0: I need to put something that looks like
1: water <laughs> into this. <train>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I think you're doing just fine. That's your beverage of choice for tonight, the books, yes. folks. <laughs> one second after the final day, our guest tonight, Dr. William Fortune. Oh, what does, what does Newt think of all this? What's his perspective?
0: Newt was the one that got me started. I, yeah, didn't I, I the... know,
1: but, but yeah. to, deal, to reign in North Korea, to reign in Iran, what's his perspective? Oh, gosh. This guy was almost president.
0: I was sitting in Newt's office 25 years ago when he was speaker at a house and sitting there while he was screaming at David Gergen in the White House about how totally screwed up North Korean policy is. That was back in 94. So what was that, 23 years ago? He has been, he's been a Jeremiah out there saying, it's it's bad guys, EMP is bad. He got me started on the book, I'm very honored that he feels I did a good job. He talks about my book a lot. The dialogue is is happening. I mean, even the Washington Post now acknowledges EMP is real, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and others. Uh, And there's been a major voice saying this is real. And you mentioned Woolsey at the start. James Woolsey, head of the CIA. He said this is, to him, one of the top three security threats and across all of American history, that's how bad it is.
1: Right. Merry Christmas,
0: Happy Hanukkah.
1: <laughs> Thanks for that. Leave us on a happy note. Uh, are you getting together with your with your daughter this uh, Christmas? Of course. Uh, yeah, well.
0: she's uh, getting set to do her PhD in some aspect of microbiology. I can't even begin to understand what she's doing, but I'm very proud of my girl. And yeah, she'll be in, she'll be here for Christmas. Yeah. That's
1: wonderful. All the best to you and yours my friend. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Just to let you know my show is syndicated through all the campuses in Canada and of course it's on YouTube and Canadian television as well. Mm-hmm. Thank so you. you. Know, have a wide wide range and I think we've just taught the students something that they may not be aware of and that it is survivable and the way you survive is by making alliances. It's as simple as that Jane Goodall told me. She said you know, Brent, it's always the uh, chimpanzees that make alliances that stick around the longest and rise to the top. The ones that try and go up by themselves doesn't happen. Merry Christmas to you and yours. I'm Brent Thank Holland. You. Thank it's you. It's been a
0: great interview. I appreciate it.
1: I appreciate that so much, too, my friend. You're welcome anytime. Next time, you got to. It doesn't matter, even if it's on, you know, some elevator going to the moon instead of just outer space. <laughs>
0: That is let's, something happy we
1: could talk about. Well, let's go to Mars, you know. Like, let's, let's do it. it let's, you talk know? About,
0: let's talk about space programs sometime.
1: I'd love it. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Absolutely. Okay, we'll be in yeah. touch, my friend. We'll, we'll make a date out of it. I'm Great. Brent Holland. Thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much, William. You take care. Okay. Bye now.